This is the Get In My Garden podcast and part B of the interview with Suzanne Wainwright, aka Bug Lady. She is a very busy consultant and public speaker on beneficial insects and is a leading horticultural entomologist. We discuss beneficial insects in more detail, such as how they are applied, how they are used instead of pesticide applications, what to avoid when buying them, and how to get them. We talk about the research trends driven by large insectaries and new bug products that are coming to market. Suzanne also shares the inside scoop of what is going on in the beneficial insect industry and job opportunities that currently exist. Subscribe to the Get In My Garden podcast on iTunes and leave positive reviews if you like the show. Can you speak a little bit to soil? I know that you have your opinions about that and you probably have a lot of knowledge about that. So the people who are talking about the soil food web and the different insects in that, how involved are you with looking at insects that live within the soil? Well, this is the thing. If it has six or eight legs, it falls in my department no matter where it is on the plant. Once we get into pathogens, I always say not my department um, because that's not what I went to school for and that's not what I've been working in. From being around all this stuff and knowing that insects do vector, they spread diseases. And if, I mean, I did you know, in college, take plant pathology and propagation and agronomy and all that stuff, because I have a degree in horticulture in addition to my entomology. Um, I I know enough to be dangerous, but I would never pass myself off as a plant pathologist because I'm not, but you can't help but pick up some of this information. Having a good soil is is critical. I mean, obviously, that's the foundation of of a healthy plant. My concern is People are spending so much time fixated on doing counts and adding this and doing that. And, and sometimes they're trying to make this whole living soil, but I, I don't understand what they're trying to emulate because a lot of these plants, whether it be, you know, cannabis, petunias, or actually even tomatoes, they are so altered from their original form that lived in the natural ecology. There's no native soil to even match it up to mm-hmm. because we've we've selectively bred these plants for, you know, a thousand years, probably plus on the cannabis, that, that the plants that we grow don't exist in nature. And so there's no native soil for them. And I, I just get concerned because there's a lot of, I will say, snake oil products that people are saying, oh, drench this microbe on your soil and, you know, you're not going to have insect problems. It doesn't work that way. If that worked, all the farmers would be doing it. All the big commercial greenhouse grower operations would be doing it. We would, and, and believe me, we have tested a lot of this stuff. I'm not saying that there aren't some really good products out there, like Trichoderma. There's a product, Root Shield. It's always alive. It's been a good product. There's research to back it up. We know exactly what it does in the soil. It basically eats a lot of the soil pathogens. It prevents damping off and things like that. So it's it's a really good investment to use with young plants. Um, Interesting. Where there are other products, which I'm not going to say anybody, there's, I don't want to bash anybody else's products, but if you get online and you start looking around about like the Oregon Department of Agriculture, um, and they've been testing a lot of these soil micro products, they're finding that there's nothing even alive in these products that are oh, being Oh, I know. Sold. There's a lot of marketing BS out there. 
There is. And I actually had um, one of my commercial growers, they got a load of compost that they were going to incorporate to grow uh, their plants in. But wisely, they had their compost tested and it was loaded with fusarium. And they spend something like $10,000 on that soil and they can't use it. My friends got predatory wasps to kill their, I guess they were grasshoppers. They had a massive grasshopper problem. Uh, are you sure it wasn't a, um, a protozoan? It's a protozoan. Okay, so there, there's a protozoan for grasshoppers. Um, they sell it like under Nolo bait that the grasshoppers ingest. And then the next generation is sterile, I believe. I don't work a lot in grasshoppers. But they do sell fly predators that they use a lot for their, their wasps. No, actually, soldier flies. There's several species, but there, there's wasps and flies that will go after, I want to, like, fill flies, like manure flies and garbage flies that they use in horse farms and cow pastures and things like that. And the, the parasite goes in and it will parasitize the flies there, which th that gets a bit more into veterinary entomology kind I of see. stuff. Yeah, because those aren't really plant pests, because that's my thing, is plant pests, not flies that feed on garbage or manure. I, right. I know enough about that, but to but also um, Beneficial Insectary, that produce, that we talked to the cucumbers, they're a huge producer of these flies, too, in California. Well, that's really cool to know those distinctions, because I think most people, they just don't have any idea. They just lump it all together, myself included, until this, until today, I guess. <laughs> So. Right. And, and, and something, too, that, you know, you kind of have to look at is, so there's insectaries, and they're the people that actually produce the flies. And then there's distributors. And I try to get my growers to buy direct from the insectaries, because this is how the rest of the world works. You know, Walmart, Target, Amazon, they, they buy, you know, they're, Target's not making the sneakers. Somebody else is making them. They buy them and resell them. But sneakers don't expire. When you're dealing with living insects that have, you know, you get them, you have a 24-hour window to get them out. If they're being shipped to another location before they come to your farm, that can add sometimes 24, 48 hours extra time in the shipment of those uh, insects or parasites or mites or nematodes and it can impact quality so like big problem yeah it can be now there's some people that the, the distributor will you order from the distributor and then the product is drop shipped to you so it's easier when I can give you a real world example. So you have a company called Southern Ag in Southeastern United States, which is interesting. They are a traditional, good old fashioned, good old boy chemical sales company. They realized several years ago that biocontrols are a big part of where ag is going and they wanted to be involved with it. But they also realized they don't know how to handle living biocontrol agents. So what they do is they go out to their customers and then they tell their growers, hey, use this, this, and this. And so when they order the bugs from Beneficial Insectary, I'm sorry, when they order the bugs from Southern Ag, they distribute for Beneficial Insectary. So Beneficial Insectary then ships the bug directly to the farm, and it never yeah. goes to the Southern Ag office. That's a smart have, uh, business model. That is, but a lot of the distributors won't do that because they don't want the insectary to know who their customers are. 
That's a great point. And my podcast has a component, a business component to it. And some of the people who have been on drop ship different plants and things like that. So I know that Amazon is one of the only ways. So Amazon probably doesn't sell these insects. They're probably not hooked up with that grower. Is that right? So if you buy insects on Amazon, Amazon, and I know a lot of people do, they're not actually coming from the insectaries. They're coming from second and third parties that are buying them and then reshipping them and doing other stuff. And the prices are through the roof. I actually did a, a well, I've taught several cannabis workshops this year, but one of them I did, we actually did a whole component on pricing of biocontrol agents. And, you know, again, I don't sell bugs, but I have an idea of a ballpark where pricing should about be. And and we went through about where ballpark pricing should be because when people are buying through, sometimes it's not always, but sometimes through these distributors, the prices are astronomical. Um, for example, the cucumeris mite we talked about, yes, it's available in what's called a sachet. And a sachet is almost looks like a tea bag on a stick or a hook. And basically for about a five to six week period, cucumeris mites come out of it. It's like a slow release system. If you are an ornamental guy, you're maybe paying 15 cents, but I've seen cannabis guys have to pay a dollar for that through these re-redistributors. And who knows how old they are when you get them. That's so, amazing. Seems like yeah. everybody's taking advantage of the cannabis industry right now. They are, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting my foot down. Um, and because they're farmers just like everybody else and they're not rolling in money. People think they are Th those guys. Some of them are going out of business. Um, oh, they have massive competition, a massive competition. The tax level, I heard an interview basically since they can't do the, the business federal write-offs that, you know, businesses like me can, um, mm -hmm. you know, working with ornamentals and vegetables. Some of them are actually paying up in like 70% tax range. Unbelievable. And you, that is not, you can't stay in business at that tax level. So even though, yeah, you know, all this money's coming in, the level of taxes and then, you know, the security, the, I, I was at a facility not too long ago that one, one of their test pieces of equipment was half a million dollars because they have to test all their own cannabis for residues and they can't test anybody else's cannabis to, you know, to try to recoup some of that cost. I mean, it just, the, the money for startup is astronomical. Very interesting. Um, was that a company in Washington state? No, that was not. Oh, well, because I've heard similar things. There's just so many requirements in Washington that makes it almost cost prohibitive to do anything. And they're bringing in massive amounts, some of these companies in income, but the profit is very small. Right. Well, Washington doesn't even have some of the strictest rules as some of the other states. I think I'm working in about nine states right now. I was trying to count the other day. How many different states I'm working with on cannabis now? Ornamentals, you know, I'm I've pretty much been everywhere besides Alaska, probably. Um, wow. I've even worked out in Hawaii. I've worked the furthest south I've been. I've worked down in Grenada. I've you know worked over in Europe. Um, work up in Canada, uh, down through the islands, Bermuda, Bahamas, Dominican Republic. Uh, you know, very just, cool. So I know you're yeah. you've got a totally full plate. You've got lots of customers, probably way more than you can handle. But if there is someone listening and they have a small to medium-sized farm, how, how does that work? I mean, is there... Well, if someone just has a quick question, you know, you can email me. That's fine. Don't write me a three-page dissertation because I don't have time to read it. If you just like, hey, I've got pepper plants, we're seeing thrips, I will point you in the right direction. But don't, you know... 
this is my family farm. We've been in for 50 years. And because, I mean, seriously, at night, when I've been in the field a day and get to my hotel room, I like have 40 emails to deal with. And wow. honestly, the people that, you know, are paying me, of course, I've got to take care of first. And then I will see, you know, how many of these smaller emails I can answer, which again, the, the shorter and sweeter to the point that's fine. Also, you know, oftentimes it's easier just to set up a time to call me real quick and, you know, I can you say yes, no, left, right, and, you know, again, get you going in the right directions because sometimes it is just best, you know, for you to go work with, you know, one of the big insectaries because there, so okay. there's beneficial insectary, there's BioLine, there's BioBest, there's Copert. Those are really the big four insect producers that are servicing the U.S. and Canadian market where they have reps that can come out and help you or the reps can talk to you on the phone. Um, uh, depends on, again, where you are in the United States. Um, and but do you always visit the sites that you're uh, consulting for? I really like to because people can try to describe it and when I get there, it's never like what they say and they they don't see what their problems are because if they knew where their problems were, they wouldn't be having problems. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And having an outside pair of eyes coming in and being like, well, Hey, you're growing your plants in this table, but above it, you've got these plants and the plants above it have broad mite that's just raining on the plants below you, you know, and, and looking at those kinds of things. Um, and also, you know, been doing a lot more sanitation practices because people just don't have good sanitation practices. Um, and that's really critical to stop the vectoring of insects, especially when it comes to any kind of propagation and, and things like that. And then I often end up while I'm on site, you know, after lunch, we do like an hour or two training lecture with, you know, the employees. So. Okay. Excellent. So here's a question. I don't know. You may not want to answer and that's fine, but I mean, you're, you're an entomologist, you have your degrees, you're an expert. Are there still positions in this industry for people who aren't going to be entomologists, but want to be involved? Yes, 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 yes. There are pretty much all the insectaries are hiring right now. And early on, you know, people thought that people that went to school for entomology make the best technical support people. But what I've been kind of seeing and what these companies have realized too, is sometimes sciencey bug people don't always have the best personalities <laughs> um, for interacting with people. And I say that very lovingly. I mean, everybody's got different kinds of personalities and we need all kinds, but also if you go to school just for entomology, you're not taught nutrition and plant propagation and production and growing systems and all this stuff. So sometimes you're not as well-rounded. And so what these companies have been doing is they've been hiring people that have been growers that know what it's like to deal with these pest issues that you know, know, understand production schedules, that understand cost of production. You know, sure, it's easy for me to waltz in and say, okay, well, you have to spend, you know, 
an extra 10 cents per plant and yeah we can control your problem but that's not economically feasible and so you have to understand the cost of production so growers often have a good background in this so the companies again like BioBest and BioLine and Beneficial Insectary and Colbert they find these people that are growers that have a bit more social of personalities and then they will train them on the technical side of it on understanding the biocontrol agents and everything but it, it it's, it's a challenge to find people that can fill that role that, that want to do it. But yeah, there are absolutely jobs out there. In fact, um, there's a newer insectary, not, not new that the business is new, but new to North America. BioBee is just um, getting set up here in the United States and they basically have to staff their business. And so, and they've had headhunters looking for over a year to find people. How interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, and then another question, I guess a follow-up question uh, are there any specific, are there very small insectaries, people who are specializing in one strain or sorry, one, uh, one insect variety? Um, well, I mean, you look at a company like BASF, which, you know, some people hate them and see them as this horrible chemical company, but you kind of have to say as a society, we wouldn't be where we are without them and the production of less expensive food and all this stuff, but they specialize in nematode production. They are the world's largest producer of nematodes. They do an amazing job of it. And nematodes are being used very, very, very heavily in not only ornamentals, but now they're looking at, you know, BSF is like, well, how can we use them in outdoor ag as a replacement for chemicals? And so there are some people like that that specialize. Um, and for those of you that don't know, oftentimes the vegetable farmers, you say nematodes and they cringe because there are they're bad nematodes, the plant parasitic ones, but they're also right. beneficial nematodes. And we use them to manage things like Western flower thrips, armyworms, uh, cutworms, certain weevil species in the soils. Fungus gnats is one of the biggest ones in propagation. If you're producing any young plants, they should always get an application of beneficial nematodes to stop fungus gnats from feeding on the root systems and spreading pathogens. But you know, we we discover, you know, all the time, what more can we do with nematodes? And there's multiple nematode species. We have multiple ways of applying them depending on how you're growing. You know, there are things, there are things we have to look at like soil temperature, soil porosity, and sometimes they're not right for everybody, but um, they are being used quite heavily these days. Uh, people even use them. There's, um, you can get a species that works on fleas in your yard. So it'll control the larval stage of fleas, which is much better than using um, a pesticide in that situation because if we've got a this is my thing I don't hate pesticides I understand we are where we are because of them mm -hmm. and we still need them in certain situations but if we have a biocontrol option that works and it is affordable why not do that first and then save the chemistries for if we absolutely have to use them Definitely. That's, that's the message I've been hearing from many different types of people who are involved with farming. It's, you know, thank you so much. Here we are. But now we have to figure out other ways to try, you know, without poisoning ourselves. Right. And, and that's why, you know, BASF, they're, they're big into the nematodes and they've got some more microbial products coming. All, you're going to see all the big agrochemical companies, they are bringing these microbial products to market, the, the trichodermas, the bavarias, the bacilluses, which are basically microbes killing other, other pets. Basically, 
what's happening in your soil naturally, but they have selected these microbes out of the soil and then basically they have little, I don't want us to call them you know, fungus farms and bacteria farms and then they raise them up bottle them and you put them out. We well, you know um Bavaria Bassiana, uh, there's a product called Botanigard which I've worked with that active ingredient over 20 years now and we use that very very heavily in production. Um, it's interesting because we can use it and spray it over top of our predatory mites because it uh, kills insects. It doesn't kill mites. And there's multiple formulations where you can get it as a liquid, you can get it as a wettable powder, you can get an omrelicid formulation as mycotrol, but we use that in conjunction with that cucumeris mite. We'll use the cucumeris mite for Western flower thrips to eat the first instar. Then we use the Bavaria to basically kill the later and adult instars. And then we're using nematodes in the soil to kill the Western flower thrips pupa in the soil. So we're targeting Western flower thrips at multiple life stages and, and we're able to manage it that way. So what happens to these insects that we've introduced? Do they join the natural, do they, I mean, do they live through the seasons there? No, 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 no. That's okay. So advantage, disadvantage. I mean, it depends on how you do, because if you're selling produce, you don't want bugs in your produce when they're going to market. Um, most of these guys are pretty specialized and they have a narrower window of what they feed on and most most of things starve to death and that's why in in like floriculture greenhouses we're putting them out like every two weeks because okay. they just end up starving to death which is I, I say the day your beneficial starve to death is it's a great day for you because that means there's nothing for them to feed on right. and it's really weird people have this like well i just don't want to put them out to starve to death and put oh, them honey <laughs> but people for how many decades have been willing to do preventative sprays without even seeing a pest? And when you put a pesticide out, less than 1% like actually reaches its target of hitting the pest. So it's weird. There's this psychological things. People are fine with spraying, but people have, you know, spraying and as a preventative and having a lot of, you know, product not actually being used, but putting out bugs and, you know, only a few bugs find a few things to eat and the rest starve to death. People have more of an issue of that, but we really don't, again, we don't want them to necessarily colonize for all the time because especially if you're doing leafy greens, you can't send leafy greens to market with bugs on them. Right. Um, and so, again, we're doing this as a preventative program. That said, sometimes in outdoor production, what we'll do is we just are kind of supplementing a little into it because you're relying so heavily on your native beneficials that are there. And actually, and you know, people are like, well, if you buy these bugs and you release them, they're going to take over and da 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 you know, and people get really uptight about this. But, you know, I put it back, let's compare it to the medical industry, you know, Back, you know, 200 years ago, we were bleeding people because we thought that was the right thing to do. And back then when they released, you know, cane toads to control pests and do stuff, they thought that was the right thing. Flash forward to now. We know so much more about medical science that bleeding's not the right thing to do. We have much better science base. It's the same thing in the bug world. You cannot just say, hey, I want to take this bug and rear it to sell it. The hoops you have to jump through with the government um, to be able to, to sell these. You've got, again, permitting, testing, and, you know, there's several biocontrol agents they use in Europe. I would love to have in the United States, but since they're not here in the U.S., we can't get them. And you can't get them because it's so difficult to get the licensing? 
the, you can't, the government will not issue a permit because we don't know what's going to happen if they were released here. Okay, I see. How interesting. And then, of course, we're genetically modifying bugs as well. I guess that's a whole different subject. Do you know? Well, I mean, th that's a mosquito thing they're doing. Right. They're not doing that in any of the stuff we're talking about. They're not. Is that um, going to happen now, in the future? I, well, the thing is, is right now, you know, the mosquitoes are different. They're, they're genetically engineering them basically so they don't make babies. I mean, here's here, pick your option. You do that or you just have to spray a ton of pesticides. Take, which, which would you rather deal with? Or option number three, everybody gets malaria, typhoid, you know, all these crazy diseases that- Well, I, uh, I only ask the question. I'm, I'm not one of those people that thinks it's necessarily bad. I'm interested in it. Yeah. And again, it's not some, I don't attend the research meetings on it and stuff, but, you know, as a society, we have to make a decision on, do we want to have pesticides sprayed and the planes going by and applying it to everything? Because people don't realize that mosquitoes are flies. Yes. And looking now at pollination, it looks like flies are as big as if not bigger pollinators than bees. And when mm. we are out spraying to kill mosquitoes, guess what we're doing? Interesting, we're killing everything. You're killing everything. Now, there are some more selective products. When you look at uh, BT, it's sold as, I think, thuricide, but it, 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 and there, so BT is a bacterium. And what they do is they basically sell it, I'm, I don't wanna make it too complicated, but it's a dead product, it's not living bacterium but it's a product that you spray and there's several different strains of it. One targets caterpillars, one targets beetles, one targets flies. And they use a lot of that in the water, you know, mosquito dunks. They put them out in standing water and that kills mosquito larvae. But again, mosquitoes are flies. That BTI, which BT is really, uh, Bacillus thuringiensis israeliensis, again, non-selective for flies. So if you have other fly larvae in the water, you're probably going to kill them too. Again, several reports, if you start looking about the overall decline in insects on the planets, most people are be like, yay, that's great. But you and I know that's yeah. bad. This well, is I know really that there are a lot bad. of bird species that are starving. They've been test Midwest different birds that rely on these insects and they're starving. Yep. And that, yeah. And that's, I mean, it's a canary in the coal mine scenario and anybody that refused to see it just, I mean, I just, I don't understand how people can deny this is all happening. I mean, if you, if you spend any time outside, you can see it happening right before your eyes. And, you know, there's been some really interesting work looking at pollinators and climate change. And since the temperature is rising, basically their geographic area they lived in is kind of getting smushed. People would think, well, the insects will just shift further north, but their plant sources can't shift that far north fast enough, as oh. fast as it's You think about it, the plants can't get up and walk to the next growing zone up north to match it, where the insects, in theory, can fly up there to look for food, but their plants aren't there. Mm -hmm. It's. I tell you, there's there's a really good, um, and it's every other year pollinator conference, and it focuses more on ornamentals and pollinators. You literally, when I leave that meeting, I just want to go back to my hotel room, curl up in a ball, and rock on my floor because it's so depressing what is going on, and it just frustrates me to no end. That for the most part, nobody cares, 
and people just want to get in their giant SUVs that get four miles per gallon, drink with their plastic straws, use plastic wrap, and they just don't give a crap about anything besides themselves. And, and the thing is, that's fine. You're going to have a great life, but we've basically just condemned all our future generations. Wow. Very depressing. Yeah. Well, and another question I have, it is a change of subject, but some people have mentioned that if they order beneficial insects, for instance, a simple common one, maybe ladybugs, ah! they, is, that a, no. is, that, is that a beneficial no. insect? Okay. Well, okay. So what makes something beneficial or a pest? It is a matter of opinion, just like how you, you know, everybody can think one dress is pretty and another's not. Depends on what you're doing. And the, my classic example is I always like to talk about praying mantises. Mm -hmm. So I say to you, praying mantis, beneficial or pest? Pest. Oh, because you knew this was going to be a trick question. Well, I know that they're beautiful to look at, but uh, they eat a lot of things. Well, they do. And okay, so you, so you think about what are a lot of our pests on plants we deal with. We deal with spider mites. We deal with aphids. We deal with thrips. Now we do deal with, you know, cabbage moths and cabbage loopers and things like that, which do fly. And that's where mantises maybe could help a little bit with that. But you think about praying mantises hunt by sight. And so what they're going to do is when insects go flying past them, they grab them out of the air and feed on them. What generally is flying back and forth and around and being real busy? Bees. Pollinators. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so I've been watching, and sadly, my numbers have greatly gone down here. I remember when I first moved here, my, like my cherry trees used to hum with the level of pollinators, and it's just you just don't hear it as much anymore. But I've been watching the mantids in my yard. And again, most of them are Chinese mantids because people sell these Chinese mantids, which are not native to the United States, but now they've been kind of naturalized here. Then they're the real big ones. And you watch them, and what do they do? They're grabbing bumblebees and surfed flies and a lot of the pollinators. Hmm. Now, when they first hatch, yeah, they might eat an aphid or something, but again, they're not really going to control our major pest issues. And it makes me crazy when people are like, oh, I've got spider mites. I'm going to put out praying mantis. No. And it's, and, and in fact, because I've been harping on this for many years, I, I saw an article written by one of the botan uh, botanical gardens where they're actually killing the invasive Chinese, well, I don't know if invasive is right, but the Chinese mantids now because they're not supposed to be here and they can be very damaging. Now, there are other native mantids, but you almost never see them. They're, the numbers aren't there that they are with the Chinese mantids. And there's also the Carolina mantis, which is native, which is a larger species. So before you go executing any mantis or keeping them as pets, you know, look up what species it is online. But generally, in my garden, I'd rather not have these large mantis species there. And of course, if you really want to get grossed out, you can go look at these Chinese mantids, you know, eating hummingbirds online because wow. they can't take down hummingbirds. Yeah. Okay, um, so, and is there yeah. a risk of parasites and things like that when you introduce insects? Well, with, so the commercially reared stuff, the stuff you get, again, from Beneficial Insectary, BioBest, Copert, BioLine, BioB, BSF, those guys, no, because they are reared in a laboratory. I mean, not a lot, but I mean, they're in, they're, they're insect farms. That's what yeah. they do. They're not going outside. And that's where the whole ladybug thing comes from. So ladybugs 
in their native habitat, when you're, you know, focusing on your local population, that's great. Yeah, you want them around. But research has shown, and also from my personal experience, buying a bucket of ladybugs and dumping them out really isn't that effective. In a greenhouse, they often just fly up to the roof of the greenhouse, or if you have any kind of grow lights in there, they just get fried in the lights. We've actually had them in hydroponic systems fall into the NFT systems mm -hmm. and clog the filters up their wings because they don't break down when they're dead. But also when you buy them, they have been wild harvested. So they go out to the Sierra Nevadas and they literally vacuum them up from their overwintering sites. So it would be like you going you know, up into the mountains, digging up a bunch of plants and then bringing them down and just selling them at your, your garden center. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what they're doing. It's the, the cost of production is almost nothing because you don't actually have to produce them. But when you take anything out of the wild, there's always a risk of parasites and disease. And they've actually documented, you can look up the research papers online where they've shown that there's this parasite, it's a type of wasp that can be carried by this. And I mean, it, pretty much when they've done the research, you know, they buy shipments of these commercially sold ladybugs and every shipment has parasites in them. And then they carry a disease called microsporidia, which wow. can affect the health of ladybugs. And I and, heard that once you do that, you're really messing with the local bugs too a lot. You can, and that's the thing. So the species they're selling um, is the convergent lady beetle here in the U.S., and you do have your own local populations. And, you know, I, you know when you, you bring them and release them, now are you putting a higher level of these parasites in the area to go after the species that you already have there. I mean, more research definitely needs to be done or we just stop selling ladybugs because it's illegal in the EU. And, and, and when I say ladybugs, wild harvested ladybugs, mm -hmm. you can get, there are other specialist ladybugs and technically they're ladybird beetles, ladybug is slang, but there's one like uh, called stethorus and it is, it's the size of a little bigger than a poppy seed, but it's a little tiny ladybug and it specializes on feeding on spider mites. And that's something you can commercially buy and release. There's one called Delphastus and it's, it's another ladybug, but it's a specialist on white flies. So that's how we use ladybugs in a commercial setting. But I say, you know, just try to preserve your native ladybug population. And some species acquire a lot of pollen, the, the ladybugs. And mm -hmm. so by having pollen plants around, you know, that's something that can help attract them in. So again, well, it sounds like there's just a lot of, uh, I think most people don't know about beneficial insects. And that's one of the things that they've heard of is people used to buy ladybugs, but it's much more like the bloodletting thing where really probably doesn't do what they want. No. And people go online and they're like, well, hmm, I can buy a bucket of ladybugs for, or a cup for, you know, $10. Oh, if I want to release the parasites that control aphids, well, that's like $60. I'm going to go with the ladybugs because it's cheaper. But those parasites are specific to specific aphid species and they will go fly around and target them. Ladybugs will stop the feed on pollen. They'll be cannibalistic on eggs, on each other, and they're not as focused um, as a specialist. And so often people are, you know, going with the bottom line because it's cheaper, but not understanding, you know, they've been vacuumed out of the mountains and basically taken out of the ecology. And, you know, let's talk about, you know, that from just, I, I, 
they say, oh, there's plenty of ladybugs. There's no impact. I can't imagine when you remove billions and billions of them out of the mountains every year, there's not an overall long-term impact on the ecology of, of displacing them. I mean, the damage is kind of done at this point, but again, the EU wised up. They made that illegal um, to do. Well, you can't go harvest insects and go sell them. They have to be lab-reared, and that's another reason why the parasites for avian control are more expensive than dumping out ladybugs, because it takes scientists and researchers to, to, to produce these, and when you get them, you're not, they're not carrying diseases in them, and it's, it's, it's very specific. Yes, that makes sense. Well, very awesome. I think you've provided so much great information. I think it covers a lot of subject matter that farmers are curious about, and they don't necessarily know about. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, if you, you're interested in learning more, I do a fair amount of workshops and teach classes around the country. One of the big ones for this summer in July I'm really excited to do is there's the Cultivate Show. That's in uh, Columbus, Ohio in July. And it's, I think it's the biggest greenhouse show in North America. Um, you know, it brings about 10,000 plus people. There's over a thousand booths and it's focused on greenhouse production. But on the Saturday before the trade show with a friend of mine from Cornell, we're going to teach an insect ID course for growers. So it will be for if, if you're, you're a grower and you want to learn how to tell, you know, a broad mite from a two-spotted spider mite, if you want to know to tell the, tell the difference between a green peach aphid and a potato aphid, you want to know the difference between an echinothrips and a western flower thrips. We're going to be teaching that information in the morning. And so it will really help your ID skills because with beneficial insects, you have got to know your insect ID because you've got to know which aphid you're dealing with to get the right parasite. So we'll be doing that in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I'm going, we're going to be doing, we're going to get on a bus and go out to a greenhouse and we're going to do a demonstration on how to release biocontrol agents, all the different packaging that's available from the different companies and a lot of that kind of information. My website's bugladyconsulting.com, which is, the, we didn't even talk about, that's, that's my business. I've had my business now 17 years working as an independent consultant. I am teaching a can, another cannabis class out in California in July, you know, other speaking stuff around the country will be on the calendar there. Well, that's awesome. You're a really great speaker, and I'm sure all those events are going to draw a lot of people. Oh, why, thank you. Yeah, it's been very fun. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. 